web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible line for our first time listeners. This is an hour long program where we have an opportunity to dialogue over the only book God ever wrote, the Holy Scripture. And if you have a particular question today that you would like to ask, you have a couple of different ways to be able to contact us directly through the phone at 525-1859 or through our toll-free number, 877, the call letters, WAGP980, 877-WAGP980. When you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you want to remain more anonymous, you can simply dictate your question to our volunteer who's here today. In addition, when you uh, contact us, you can email us directly here into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. And your question will come up on the screen in front of us, and we'd be happy to respond to it if we can get to it. A lot of questions have uh, already come in, and we already have someone waiting on the phone. So let's go to our first live caller this morning. Good morning. Welcome to the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Dr. Brody. Good morning. Uh, my, my question is this. Listening to MacArthur this morning on, on the station, and he was discussing the end times, and when our Lord Jesus was telling his disciples that this generation would not pass away until he, we, they saw uh, him coming back on clouds with great glory and power. And MacArthur was saying that it was the people that were left during the tribulation, that was the generation he was speaking of. Um, there's, there's no one that I trust more with Scripture and their interpretation of it than you, Dr. Brogy. And I just, I just wanted to get your, your feelings on this. If, if in fact, that generation did, that our Lord was speaking of was the folks during the tribulation? It's a great question. Um, it's mentioned in a couple of different passages, but of course the most extensive treatment of the coming tribulation period is found in Matthew 24. And beginning in verse 32, Jesus said here from the Olivet Discourse, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Some have uh, tried to make a uh, huge interpretation over the phrase the fig tree, because it is true in the Old Testament the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. But when you look at the parallel account found in Luke's gospel, he says, learn a lesson from the 
fig tree in all the trees. So he extends it beyond the fig tree, making it very clear that it's not something exclusive of Israel. And so Hal Lindsey came up with an interpretation in the 1970s in a popular book he wrote, The Late Great Planet Earth. And he said, well, when the fig tree, namely Israel, shows life, becomes a nation, then that generation will not pass away. And so he basically, without wanting to set a date, set a date and said, well, Israel became a nation in 48 and a generation is 40 years. So by 1988, uh, God will return through his son. Um, And then he kind of recounted that when that didn't happen. He said, well, biblical generation could be 70 years. And But when you look at the parallel text, it's very clear that he's not referring just to the fig tree, meaning symbolic of Israel, but all the trees. And in New England, uh, one of the very first trees to put out uh, its leaves is the willow trees. And so when the willow tree begins to sprout and put out those tiny little leaves, the first one to do that, you know, well, summer is approaching because spring is now has now come. And so Jesus is just making a statement here. When you see certain signs take place in the physical realm, you know summer is near. Even so, here's the application. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, what things? The things that he just described beginning uh, with the abomination of desolation and um, the Jewish people fleeing into the wilderness, the great tribulation that has never occurred nor has since occurred since the beginning of time, are the events that are described in Revelation 4 through 18. So he says, when you see these things take place, you know that he's near right there at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation, that generation who's alive during the great tribulation period, who witnessed things like the uh, stars in the sky literally following, the, the, the moon being turned to blood red, the sun being darkened, that generation shall not pass away because they are going to see the literal, physical, actual second coming. Now, the second coming is sometimes combined in a program depending on how one describes it, but understand that the second coming, usually an expression used to refer to an actual event within the broad scheme of end-time prophecy, when Jesus will literally, physically, actually return in the same way he left, as Acts 1 indicates. That is a distinct event from the rapture. The rapture, the catching up of the church, is different from the second coming. Now, some combine that all in the second coming program. So you have to define terms. But the word rapture just means to be caught up. In the Latin translation of the Bible done by Jerome in the 4th century, he took the uh, word, for we shall all be caught up. We shall not all die, but we'll be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. The word caught up, of course, is uh, in the Latin is the word from which we get our word rapture. The Greek word is harpazo. In either case, uh, when Christ comes for his people, he comes and we meet him in the air. When he comes at the second coming, he comes to the earth. His feet literally touch the Mount of Olives. So some would, I say all that to ask this, why is Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, significant for the church, for the body of Christ? Because there are no signs for the rapture of the church. Nothing prophetically has to be fulfilled for Jesus Christ to come again. He could have come at any moment. And as you read the New Testament, they really write with that expectation that he's right at the door. He he, he could come at any second. Um, 
And while there are no prophecies that need to be fulfilled for the rapture, there's hundreds of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled for the second coming of Christ, a one world leader, a one world currency, and so forth. Uh, the abomination of desolation, that assumes the temple's rebuilt, that it's in place, and that in the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist will go in and make himself out to be God, all those things have to happen. The uh, sun needs to be darkened, the moon needs to turn to blood red, the stars literally need to fall out of the heavens. All that has to happen for the second coming to take place. That hasn't taken place. But when you see the stage being set for those events, you know, because the rapture precedes the second coming, you know that the rapture is that much closer. When you go into Walmart in October and the Christmas decorations go up, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And so as you see God unfolding the events for the return of his son from heaven, you know the rapture is that much closer. But John MacArthur is definitely correct in that, in that he is referring here to the generation that is alive during the Great Tribulation. I've always taught it that way. Um, That's the historical interpretation of the text, and I think it's totally accurate. All right, let's go to the next question or email or call or whatever we're up for next. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. And I know we did have a a listener we were calling back. Let's see if uh, they're coming up. I guess not. In the meantime, um, this person writes, um, what traditional funerals are expensive? What does the Bible say about cremation? Well, you know, it is true that sometimes people spend a whole lot more on a funeral than they need to. And in the midst of their grief, They're overwhelmed sometimes, and many times they want to express their love uh, in a concrete way for other family members or the one that they have lost, and they spend probably, in most cases, too much money. Uh, Your family member doesn't know the difference whether he is in an $8,000 casket or a $2,000 casket. And by the way, you can spend a small, small amount for a casket. In some states, a couple of states, you don't even need a casket. You can still wrap the body in a sheet and drop the person in the hole. Um, but what's happened is the funeral industry has lobbied states, state by state, and they've made it very regulated such that you have to buy more additions than maybe are necessary. But you can buy a cheap pine box. Um, you can buy a casket online at Costco. <laughs> you can save some money and bring it to the funeral home and say, this is the this is the box I want my loved one to be in. So you can control costs a whole lot more. And if you don't ask and if you don't think forwardly, uh, then it raises the price up. The second half of your question in reference to cremation, you might want to listen to a message I preached on Genesis 25, where I deal extensively with the subject on the death of Sarah and Ishmael. And in either case, um, cremation is not recommended for the believer. It really has pagan origins in this country through the uh, Unitarian Church that denied the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, and the physical, literal, actual resurrection of the body. And so in defiance of that, they would burn their loved ones. And so for really decades in this country, cremation was unthinkable. 
But beyond that, the biblical example is to bury. In every instance in the Old Testament, God's people are buried. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the New Testament, God's people are buried. John the Baptist is buried. They don't cremate him. That was a pagan practice in that day. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who died, they are buried. First Thessalonians 4 assumes that they're coming up out of the grave, that they have been buried. Certainly, if someone's cremated, it has no net effect in terms of the actual resurrection. Some people's body you can never find when they die. They've been lost at sea and eaten by fish or They have been destroyed in an airline crash and their body incinerated into nothing. Uh, Again, it's not a problem for God, but the Christian in 1 Corinthians 15 plants the body in the ground like a seed with a sense of expectation. And in faith, they put the body in the ground knowing there's as much hope for the body as there is for the soul and that someday God will raise the body up. And God himself, when he performs a funeral in Deuteronomy 31, it says he, referring to Yahweh, he, the Lord, buried Moses. So God uh, has given us a pattern in Scripture, which I believe we should follow. And I do believe very practically that if I were to do your funeral and you're listening and there's no body there, well, you've lost a lot of punch to your funeral. Uh, There's something about the reality of death and the presence of a physical body when a funeral is done that really heightens the awareness of what each and every one of us will face. You know, during the time of the Soviet Union, they were very restricted in terms of their freedoms to be able to share the gospel openly. But one thing that they could do is they could do funerals. And the Soviet communist regime still had enough compassion where they could do a funeral. And so at the funerals, they would preach the gospel. In fact, to this day, when they do their funerals, they're not done at a funeral home. They're usually done at the home, at the apartment complex. The body is there. Uh, The only people in the former Soviet Union all across Eastern Europe who ever get buried in a church uh, or have the funeral service, I should say, in the church are pastors. Everybody else, it's outside. It doesn't matter if it's 25 below zero. Your funeral is going to be outside. But they see it as an opportunity to share Christ right there in the neighborhood amongst friends and relatives and people who knew the individual. So that's a good thing. Let's go to our next caller who's waiting. Indeed, we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning, Pastor. Appreciate the program. Yeah, thanks for calling today. I wanted to ask a question about uh, Paul's, Paul and Peter both mentioned Jesus Christ uh, led, led, leading captivity captive and giving gifts to men. And also in 1 Peter 3, when he goes and preaches to the spirits in prison, those who were disobedient during the days of Noah and during the floods. So I, I kind of wanted some better understanding on that. I want to know if you would comment on that. Sure. Um, I have a whole series on First and Second Peter that might be useful to anyone Uh, listening to this uh, broadcast today if you want to study it in more detail. But it tells us in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's him, for us, the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, please notice what the text does not say. It does not say that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the flesh. Now, that is true. Jesus ultimately wasn't made alive in a resurrected body, which he's going to affirm in verses 21 and 22 that will follow. But in this context, he says that Jesus was 
put to death in the flesh, of course, when he was crucified, but made alive in the spirit, in which, in the uh, word which is a pronoun in Greek that goes back and it modifies Christ's spirit. In which, meaning in his spirit also, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So when Jesus died on the cross, in which on Golgotha, he completely paid for sin. He finished the payment. He didn't go to hell and pay for sin as Joyce Meyer teaches falsely and along with a lot of other crazy doctrines that she espouses. No, he paid in full our debt for sin. But sometime between uh, a Friday afternoon, late, before evening, before sundown, day one, when he was laid in the tomb, and on the third day, early Sunday morning, he was resurrected, sometime between those two points, Jesus went on a preaching mission. And he preached to spirits who were currently in prison. And the Greek indicates that the New American Standard adds the word now in italics uh, because it is implied in the Greek by the uh, tenses that are used here. So he goes on a preaching mission to some spirits. Now, the word here for spirits is typically used in the Bible of angels. And so there's a group of angels that Jesus went and preached to who specifically were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah. So there were some angelic beings who were disobedient, who are now in prison. And Second Peter, of course, uh, describes these spirits as well as the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, he, he speaks of uh, some particular group of angels who, just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah in Jude 1-7, uh, left the natural state that God created them for and committed gross immorality. Even so, he argues that there are angels who did not keep their own domain, but ab- abandoned their proper abode. And these angels he has kept for eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So whatever he's referring to, clearly the New Testament audience understood what it was a reference to. Well, what would they have understood this as a reference to? And again, um, Peter references it in Second Peter 2. He describes them in a particular compartment of hell known as Tartarus, where they are under what he calls eternal bonds. And so there are some fallen angels, as Daniel 10 illustrates, and as Ephesians 6 in the New Testament teaches, that have freedom to wage war against God's people, but there is a particular class of angels uh, that are not abyss angels who are led out during the time of the great tribulation. These are angels who will never be led out who are in eternal bonds because they did something that paralleled the sexual immorality of the people of Sodom. What the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did was not natural. It's unnatural for a man to lie with a man for a woman to lie with a woman. I don't care what the government is saying, that people are created this way, born this way, made this way. Uh, That's a moral heresy. And the Word of God does not teach that. The Word of God is very clear that while God does indeed love all people and he loves drunks and fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals, he does not like what we can do. He does not like our sin. 
And again, it doesn't matter what people are saying today. And now it's beginning to move into the so-called evangelical church where you have people who are saying it's okay. Brian McLaren, one of the leaders in the emergent church, is saying homosexuality. In fact, he performed a wedding ceremony for his son. You know, here's a guy who, uh, with Rob Bell, who's also espoused the same thing, speaking at churches like Willow Creek in Chicago. Listen, what those guys are advocating is wicked. God calls it an abomination. I don't care who lends credence to it or how big their church is. It is wrong, just plain wrong. And so God parallels a certain class of angels with leaving the way God created them to function. When a man lies with a man, he is abandoning his natural abode. He's abandoning what God created him to do with a woman who's married to. Um, in the same way, some angels did something of sexual immorality. The only hint in all of the word of God of that taking place is found in Genesis 6, where it says the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, cohabitated with the daughters of men. He doesn't say the daughters of men cohabitated with the sons of men, but the sons of God, a term that's used in the Psalms and used in Job and other places to refer to angelic beings. And so there were some angels in the days of Noah that because angels can take on human bodies. And so Hebrews reminds us that it's possible for you to entertain an angel and not to know it. And in every instance in the Bible, when an angel appears, he always appears in a male body. And in either case, uh, they were so real and their bodies were so real that the men of Sodom, even after they were blinded, uh, outside of Lot's front door, wanted to break the door down and have sexual relations with the angels that were there. They believed it was possible because it was possible. And so when these angels took on human bodies, while angels cannot cohabitate with angels and have little baby angels, uh, Jesus plainly taught that despite what medieval art may uh, try to illustrate, Jesus made it very clear that God fixed a a number of angels never to be repeated and never to be multiplied. Uh, angels don't marry angels, but it is possible for an angel to have left his p- proper abode and to have cohabitated with the daughters of men. And that's exactly what they did, and the New Testament references it. So I go through a number of passages very carefully. And by the way, that's what the church taught for 1,500 years. That's what the church fathers exclusively wrote of. Uh, That's how they understood the passage in Genesis. Uh, That's the way most Jewish rabbis to this day still understand Genesis. Uh, That's the way uh, extra biblical literature and commentaries uh, understood the Genesis text. Um, So Jesus went and preached to that group of angels that were so wicked that they are in eternal bonds. Why? Because as Colossians 2.15 teaches that when Jesus died on the cross, he made a spectacle of the demonic world through the triumph of his cross. But there was a particular class of angels that did not hear of what the Lord Jesus had done. And Jesus went and preached to them. Uh, In Ephesians 4, I believe that when, and this is how most take it, 
um, that when Jesus ascended, he basically emptied out Old Testament paradise. Now, what is a little confusing in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul has a vision and he's caught up into the third heaven, he's caught up into paradise. And so paradisos is the same word that's used to describe Old Testament righteous Sheol as it is used to describe heaven today. So you could even describe heaven today as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12 as paradise, the Father's house, the new Jerusalem. Um, But Jesus emptied out Old Testament righteous Sheol and carried a a host of captives up into heaven at the ascension. Uh, but that's a whole nother sermon and a lot more time. But it's a great question. But they might want to, again, listen to those passages that have already preached in great detail. Let's go to the next question. And indeed, if uh, that last caller or the one before who had the question about funerals uh, wants to listen to any of those messages, they can go to searchthescriptures.org and just look at the archives. Now, um, Joshua from Beaufort says, I have recently run into some Calvinists in a recent debate I had on election versus predestination, and they were appealing to the Greek word eklegomai in Romans 8, 28 to 30 to say that predestination is supported even in the Greek text. How do I properly understand this term and its use in this passage in a way that supports election and not predestination? What is the contextual meaning of this word in the Greek New Testament? Well, as it's used in Ephesians 1, God chose us before the foundation of the world. So God does choose people. God elects people. So the doctrine of election is not a doctrine that you can brush off and say, well, just Calvinists teach that. All biblical Christians believe in the doctrine of election. But again, it's not an issue of does God elect, it's how God elects. And so this person might want to go and listen to my two messages that I've just preached on Romans eight twenty nine and 30. Romans eight twenty nine and 30, I spent a week just dealing with the issue of foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge? And then we looked at the five links, so to speak, in our salvation chain that God has for his people. Uh, I will spend more time when we come to the ninth chapter. I'm sure we'll be there at least five weeks in the ninth chapter, because the ninth chapter becomes really the critical chapter. Romans 8 just briefly brushes on and introduces the doctrine of sovereign election. But Romans 9 will deal with it in great detail. So I'm just going to tell you, hold on to your seat. Wait till we get to Romans 9. Uh, I'll be in there for at least five hours, I suspect. And I'll answer your question in more detail then. Let's go to the next question. All right, 525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Pat from Ansonia, Connecticut, wants to know whether the publisher's clearinghouse might be considered gambling. Uh, she writes, it comes in the mail. It's used by them to sell mass marketing items. You don't have to buy to enter the raffle but it does cost time and a stamp. <laughs> you know, I haven't gotten one of those in a lot of years, Rick. I think people do it online now. I'm not sure. So if she wanted to uh, alleviate the cost of a stamp, whatever it is now, 49 cents or whatever, uh, then she could go online, I think, and put her name in the in the box. Uh, is that constitute gambling? I don't think so. Um, you know, gambling involves risk. It's a form of true gambling, of covetousness. It's a plan to get rich quick, things that the Bible totally speaks against. 
So while the word gambling is not found in the word of God, the principles against it are found in God's word. And so when there is significant risk that a person has uh, placed before themselves, and I don't think 49 cents would constitute such a risk in terms of the cost of a stamp, though uh, I will say that what are your chances, one in, uh, I don't know, 100 million or something of ever winning, but um, that's not really the heart of gambling, and gambling is uh, uh, rooted in a love of money, it's rooted in a covetousness, a spirit of covetousness, and those are things that God clearly condemns. Mm, but your chances are very good of getting solicited for a lot of magazines. Afterwards. That's true, I'm sure. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Rachel from King George, Virginia writes, Every day I'm burdened with knowing if I am truly saved or not. I accepted Jesus when I was young, around eight or so. I'm now 16, but I think I only asked for salvation so I wouldn't go to hell. Over the years, I never felt like I experienced any fruit in my life. I would dread church, feel uncomfortable around other Christians, and feel lonely and awkward at any church event. Recently, though, starting at the end of last year, I just suddenly felt more free. I stopped caring what people thought of me, physical appearance, etc., and even started going to church events, feeling happy, content, and spiritually satisfied during and after. I also turned from secular music to mostly Christian music. I want to serve God and the church so much. I feel like I have spiritually changed and fruit has started growing in me. I haven't, haven't ever accepted uh, Jesus, though, since I was eight, so I don't know if I have been saved and I just started growing now or what. This has been troubling me for so many years. Do you know if I am truly saved? Thank you so much. Well, these are some great questions, and I think part of your great consternation that you're feeling within is due to the fact that there's a lot of misconceptions and miscommunications today as to what even the gospel is. For instance, you use, you use the terminology accept Jesus. Uh, the term accept Jesus is found nowhere in the Word of God. The Bible never tells you to accept Jesus. Sometimes I'll meet people and they say, well, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, and just because I've learned that people don't always even know what that means. I'll pull back the veneer a little bit and ask some probing questions to see if they understand the gospel. And I'll say, well, tell me what it means to accept Jesus. If I came to you and I said, I wanted to accept Jesus, what would you tell me that I needed to do or how I would need to respond? And sometimes they'll come back and they'll say, well, to accept Jesus is to believe that he's God and and to emulate your life after him and to follow his teachings and to live like he lives. Well, that's really salvation by works, and the Bible does never once says to accept Jesus. Sometimes people say, well, you commit your life to him, and again, you probe, and you say, well, what does it mean to commit your life to Jesus? And they'll say, well, you, uh, you know, you, you obey the golden rule and keep the Ten Commandments and purpose in your heart to be a good model. Well, again, that's salvation by works. The Bible never says to commit your life to Jesus. The Bible does say to believe in Jesus not just about him, millions of Americans believe about Christ, but to believe in him. And the word pestuo in the Greek, and the word that is a synonym for it, faith, pistis, they're spelt almost identically. In fact, in some languages of the world, they translate the word faith as belief. 
uh, like in all your Slavic languages of the wor- world, the word faith and the word belief, it's the same word in the Slavic languages, Russian and Ukrainian and those languages. They don't have two separate words, though it is technically two separate words in Greek, but they are synonyms in the New Testament. They are two words that mean the same thing. So sometimes the Bible says you're saved by believing in Jesus or your faith in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Some people think, well, you know, you, you trust God when you're in a jam and you, you need a healing or financial help or um, physical uh, deliverance from, you know, a threat to your life or uh, problems solved in your marriage or with your kids. And, and those are good to trust God for what we might call your daily bread need. But that's not the kind of faith that will make you a Christian. God asks you to put your faith in something he's actually already done 2,000 years ago, that when Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, the Bible refers to the death, burial, and the resurrection with two words, the gospel. Now, gospel is a religious word in our day, uh, but it was not necessarily in the New Testament. It just meant good news. And any good news in many secular contexts would be described as gospel. Of course, when you put the article in front of the word, like in English, the gospel, as the Greek New Testament refers to it, it's not referring to just any old good news, but a specific good news. And Paul said, I delivered to you as a first importance, the gospel, that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And in Romans 1.16, he says, the gospel is the power of God for your salvation. And so part of your... Um, Again, anxiety within that you're feeling probably goes back to you look back at as an eight-year-old child, and I would say, did you really understand the gospel? Many times parents will bring their children in for a baptism, and they'll tell me, well, this child has received Christ. The parent really sincerely believes that, and sometimes they have. And the parents indeed have led them to Christ, but sometimes all they've done is indoctrinated them with some catchphrases. Just pray this prayer, invite Jesus into your heart, and you'll be saved. Actually, the Bible never once ever says to invite Jesus into your heart. In uh, the history of the church, that phrase is less than 60 or 70 years old. Now, it is found in Revelation 3.20, but the word heart never appears. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. The word heart is not in the verse, cardia. Uh, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and and dine with him and he with me. More likely that verse, so it might be argued that there could be unbelievers at the door of the church, more than likely what he's referring to are believers who need to come and have fellowship with him, as he speaks to in John 13, as 1 John 1 speaks of. But not salvation. It's not really a salvation verse. So sometimes people make a quote-unquote decision without understanding, one, that they're a sinner, that there is nothing they can do to earn heaven, and that only the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can save them. But they associate quote-unquote being saved with joining the church or getting baptized or walking the aisle or praying a prayer, but not necessarily with the death, burial, and resurrection. And that's why your life really didn't change. That's why you felt so uncomfortable. Feeling that kind of discomfort amongst God's people, not wanting to be there, actually is a mark of unbelief that you hadn't been converted. Uh, John says at the end of 1 John, these things I've written to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What things? Well, the things that he describes in 1 John, 
that are marks of conversion. If you have these marks of conversion, then you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. And one of the marks that he gives, he says, by this we know we've passed out of death into life. We love the brethren. A mark of conversion is you love God's people. Um, And if you don't have a love for the people of God, it just means that that affinity that God gives through his second birth is not there because conversion hasn't taken place. And so you're feeling all this tension inside, partly because sometimes when people describe salvation, they'll describe conversion as happening at a point in time. And unless you can point to that point in time, then they'll say you're not saved. So they'll say, well, when were you saved? And you say, well, I'm not sure. They'll say, well, if you're not sure, it must mean you're not saved. Now, it is true that you are saved at a point in time. There's a a moment when you cross over from death into life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. But the Bible doesn't give assurance in our ability to pinpoint that date. Now, I would say probably the majority of Christians can pinpoint that date. But not all Christians can. I, I, I met recently with a young girl. Uh, she's about 12 years old, and her parents brought her in. And she said, Pastor, you know, I, I've been taught about Jesus since I was born, it seems. I can't remember when I didn't know about him. So if you ask me when I became a Christian, she said, I couldn't tell you. But am I a Christian? Yes. And that was really a healthy answer. Um Again, sometimes I'll say to people, well, are you trusting right now in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Well, I didn't know you had to do that. Well, then you don't know the gospel yet. Or they'll say, yes, I am. Oh, then then you can say you're a Christian. Did you know and trust Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection a month ago? Yes, a year ago. Yes, two years ago. Well, I don't know if I understood it two years ago. Well, you can say you've been a Christian at least a year. And then the only issue you really have to ask is, is my baptism on the right side of my conversion? Because sometimes people are baptized before they get saved. And that's like wearing a wedding band before you get married. It's just kind of an empty symbol. So what I would say to this caller from Connecticut or wherever they're calling from, Connecticut, um, is they might want to go online to searchthescriptures.org and listen to a message I've preached. You can actually watch it live stream video if you like called, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? And if you were in my office, that's what I would share with you across the table. And I think that would be of huge help to you. And then you might want to begin to listen to the Back to Basics series. And those are also online. And the first message that, or the first uh, outline that we provide there takes three weeks to go through. And it deals with assurance of salvation and eternal security. And I think that would be a huge help to you. And if you listen to this teaching from the Word of God, well, faith comes from hearing and hearing about the Word of God. And God would give you a sense of assurance himself. And that's really where it ultimately needs to come from. All right. right. I gave you some wrong information there. She's from Virginia. Virginia. The the previous one was Connecticut. Okay. Uh, from Yuma, Arizona, however, Jason uh, would like to know if you are familiar with Vadi Bakum, a pastor of Grace Baptist in Spring, Texas. He writes, I've seen him recently on a few television shows defending biblical truths. Now, if you are familiar, do you have an opinion as to whether uh, Pastor or Mr. Bakum's ministry is theologically sound? Vadi's a good man. He has the gospel. He's one of the great black preachers in America. Um, there are some aspects of his ministry that are controversial in terms of um, 
oh, uh, whether, say, daughters should go to college and things like that. But he is, for the most part, straight as an arrow, and there's very few things that I would differ with him on. Uh, He spoke last year, I think it was at the Shepherds Conference that John MacArthur has for pastors, and he was uh, one of the workshop speakers, though the head pastor overall youth ministries at, at John MacArthur's church differs with him theologically on some of his views. Um, which is okay. You know, we can agree to disagree. That did not stop them from having him as a, um, as a, a speaker there at the pastor's conference. So he's a good man, has the gospel, and he raises some things that, you know, maybe is new to some people. Um, I've been teaching since I came to Community Bible Church since 1990. And it's the balance between a parent's responsibility and youth ministry. And what Vadi has seen, and I would agree with him, that there's a lot of youth ministry that takes place in the United States that is not beneficial but detrimental to the spiritual health of some kids. And so some kids go to a youth group and, you know, they lose their virginity there. They first experiment with drugs and alcohol, and instead of it bringing them up, it brings them down. And that's a negative thing. Um, youth ministry has had some very negative results in some aspects. Now, I was saved to Christ through a youth ministry. So I'm not going to obviously say that all youth ministry is evil. I'm, I'm a product of a youth ministry, of a Campus Crusade for Christ. I spent 12 years ministering to him. Now, if I was wrong, I would be the first to tell you and say I was deceived and shouldn't have been involved in it. But I wasn't. But it's like anything else, things can be put out of balance. And if a parent drops their child off at a youth ministry and they say, here, you fix them, they've got the wrong mentality. Now, the youth ministry might be a vehicle in which uh, with the church, uh, God's people can reach unchurched youth. Listen, most of the youth in America are unchurched. And we can easily get into some of these holy huddles where we think, well, those people have cooties, so to speak, or they're evil, or and we don't want them to infect our kids. And if you have that mentality exclusively to the point where you're not involved in reaching them, then you will not raise up vibrant, spirit-filled children. If your children are not uh, engaged and care about reaching the lost, they won't be spirit-filled any more than you will be spirit-filled. And you will raise anemic children who will not be passionate for Jesus Christ. So you ought to care about youth in America because most youth, over 80% of them, go to church nowhere on Sunday morning. And so we ought to care about children and youth. But you need to be on top of it because, listen, you drop your kids off at a youth group and you don't know what's going on. That may really be a negative experience. You ought to maybe go to the youth group with them. They don't want to be with us. And then, um, look, then there's not health there in your home, and you need to fix some things. Uh, A parent ought to be able to go to any youth meeting with their child. Their child ought to want them to be there. The mentality of this generation is to say it's uncool to be with your parents. If your kids have that mentality, then, then you are on the way to losing them, and that's not a good thing. Anyway, let's go to the next question. Someone's waiting on the air patiently. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
Hi, good morning. How are you this morning? Doing well. Thanks for calling. Wonderful. Um, I've got a bit of a, I've had a question for a few weeks and I've been waiting to get through and it, I'm not sure uh, if this is uh, almost ridiculous or not, but I'm in uh, Proverbs 30 um, in verse 11. And um, initially I was struggling to figure out the, the initial uh, four times it says there is a kind and I think I've got around that. But while I was doing that, um, in, in the second section of, of the 11th verse, it says, and does not bless his mother. And when I, 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 I'm not schooled, um, I just use whatever I can to translate. But I can't make that say, does not bless his mother. And I was wondering if there's some kind of inflection in there that makes that negative. Because it looks, it, when, you, when you translate it as a, you know, a layman, um, it, it, looks, it looks the same as above where it says, you know, blesses his father but does not. I don't have the Hebrew text in front of me, Rick, if you can pull it up but let me uh let me just respond that um uh, I don't remember studying Proverbs 30 before seeing any translation problems there. Uh there is a structure in Hebrew um where the way Hebrew words are structured the first um uh, is translated in a positive realm and the second in a negative realm. And uh, just like there are in Hebrew what we call Hebrew parallelisms, like he will, um, in Proverbs 31, the next chapter, I'm just looking at it, uh, there's a Hebrew parallelism when he says, give strong drink to uh, him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. That's a parallelism. He's not talking about two different things, but uh, the same thing, a man who's, who's perishing and therefore his life is bitter. There's a similar structure. Oh, here it is, verse uh, 11. Uh, yes, it's it's the same here. It's a it's a positive negative structure. So the New American Standard is quite precise here by saying there is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. He goes on. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes yet is not washed from his filthiness. In the next verse, and uh, it's the exact same structure in Hebrew. So. Anyway, I hope that helps. It's a good question, maybe a little too technical for the Bible line for most people to appreciate, but let's go to the next question. All right. Um, Glenda from Bluffton writes, uh, I work with someone that wanted to know what you thought about a medium, and also do you think you can communicate with the dead? Well, uh, let me just say uh, God is not big on mediums. He, he, he doesn't like it at all. Um, he speaks against the use of mediums in Scripture. Uh, sometimes people have used a couple of verses out of context, but let me just turn, first of all, to the book of Leviticus real fast. And uh, in Leviticus, it says, um, Now a man or a woman who is a medium or spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Um, likewise in Leviticus 19 in verse 31, I'm just turning back here a page. Do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. Uh, likewise in Deuteronomy, let me just turn there just for a second. Deuteronomy chapter, uh, 18, uh, verses 10 through 12, 18, 10 through 12, um, 
here he says, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who practices divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. So then the question becomes, well, is it possible to call up the dead? Well, yeah, it is. Um, if it were not possible, then God would not prohibit it. Uh, now, how does it happen? Well, I think you're entering into the realm of the demonic when you do it. Now, the passage that is often a passage of debate is found on the occasion when Saul uh, goes to the witch of Endor and uh, asks her to uh, have a conversation with Samuel. And, of course, um, Saul himself, based on what God had revealed in the Mosaic Law, had forbade uh, anyone going to a medium. Uh, And it was punishable by death. And so she's a little bit, if you remember, hesitant to offer him help, knowing the consequences that the king himself has dictated. And uh, he, uh, strangely enough, swears by Yahweh. He's not, he's not going to Yahweh. He's not going to the Lord for God's help. He's going to a medium. And, of course, his, his, uh, his motivation is to see what's going to happen in terms of his success as a king in a battle. Uh, nonetheless, he swears by God that he would not put her to death or there would be any consequence. And then what actually happens is Samuel comes up and she screams. Now, there is some debate over the text as to why she screams. Does she scream because uh, Samuel reveals this is Saul and she fears for her life? Or does she scream because it actually happened? Because very often what mediums do is they are not communicating with the dead. They're communicating with the demonic world. And they are communicating with demons. And demons very often are happy to accommodate people in spiritual realms to get them to believe a lie. And that's what the thief comes to do, to kill and to destroy and to steal. Um, But it is possible. If it were not possible, God would not prohibit it. But he calls it an abomination. So it's not something that anyone should ever try to do or seek to do. Um, It's an evil thing, God says, and he prohibited it. And those who did it and those who sought it were to be under the theocracy of Israel killed. Uh, They were to be stoned to death. That's how evil God saw it to be. So good question. Let's go to the next one. Angelique from Varnville writes, I grew up watching Disney movies. Let me just say, too, before I leave that question, there's probably two verses that people use out of context in the New Testament to build a case for this. One is in James where it talks about the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And they say, well, who's more righteous than someone who's in heaven? And so they would say, well, you talk to dead people who are in heaven who can pray on your behalf. But that's not what the context of that verse is dealing with. He's dealing with righteous leadership in the local assembly. Um, who are not only positionally righteous, but practically righteous, like Elijah was practically righteous in his behavior. And the other verse that's often used out of context is found in Hebrews 12, where it speaks of a great cloud of witnesses. And Roman Catholics use this as well to argue for, you know, interceding with the dead. 
um, and people who've gone on before and people who are saints. But the witnesses that he's describing are those folks in chapter 11. And we're not witnessing to them by our behavior. They're witnessing to us by how they lived a life of faith. Anyway, let's go to that question. Uh, I interrupted you there, but I raise that because sometimes people raise those texts to argue uh, for not only calling up the dead, but praying to dead people. Mm. All right. Angelique would like to know. She says, I grew up watching Disney movies and other shows and movies like them. I still enjoy watching them, and it's something my little sister and I do often. However, as a new believer, now it seems more clearer than ever the magical elements like the genie in Aladdin, the voodoo in The Princess and the Frog, or the fairy godmother in Cinderella, just to name a few, among other worldly, unbiblical aspects that exist in these otherwise enjoyable movies that often include great messages. I'm even reminded of a um, uh, time we were watching Mulan, and my sister pointed out that it was wrong for the characters to pray to seek uh, to and seek help from their dead ancestors. And there have been other instances where we've been able to discuss how some of the elements go against the Word of God. So here's my question. Should I stop watching these movies, especially with her, or should I just take advantage of those uh, elements in the movies and use them as teaching moments? Where in the Word of God can I gain more insight about this issue? Listen, when you're, when you're dealing with little children, uh, the responsibility of parents, and sometimes it's uh, the leadership example of siblings in the home, is to protect their hearts, not to bring them down, but only to bring them up. And so listen, there, there, there's a hidden agenda in a lot of uh, not just Disney, but cartoons and so many things today that are being promoted to children. Some some cartoons on Saturday morning, if parents would actually look and see what their kids are watching, are promoting homosexuality. Uh, they're promoting a feminist agenda. Uh, they are promoting strong women, weak men, uh, women who are career-minded in uh, dismissing the idea of traditional family values where a mother is a worker at home. There, there's a hidden agenda in so many of these things, and then some more, some that are more forthright, where there's a, a form of spirituality that is extremely negative. Remember, everything that is spiritual is not spiritually good. And Paul plainly tells us that in Ephesians 6, that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and evil forces that are at work in the heavenly places. And so there is a lot of evil that's being promoted and a lot of innocence that is being robbed from children. And I I remember many, many years ago when Star Wars first came out, in the uh, 1970s, the very first Star Wars movie. And I went over to a friend's house, and his little brother was all confused about God and saw God as a force, as a good force versus the negative force. And that kid's mind was more enraptured in Star Wars and the pantheism that um, Lucas had when he... um, promoted that whole series. He's a pantheist, or was a pantheist. He's dead now and knows better. But he um, he was a pantheist and had a pantheist agenda when he created that movie. And he wrote so in his, wrote of it in, in his own book in producing those movies. So you've got to be really careful. And look, there's so many other good alternatives that you can find for children. Some of them are old, but they're good. 
and uh, buy them, you know, the Little House series online or the uh, Avonlea series. Or there's just a lot of good, wholesome things. So why fill their mind with mystery and trash and things that are just spiritually counter to the Word of God ever before they can be discerning and wise to filter through those things? We're out of time today. Tonight in Bluffton at 715 Community Bible Church. I'll be meeting there for people looking for a church home. Go to cbcbuford.org for details.